Well, I'm so happy to be able to get to share God's word with you this morning. And as I'm standing out here this morning, I, you know, um, preaching is kind of a dynamic thing in which hopefully the one preaching is also joining in being preached too. And I'm rethinking this morning uh, something I'd like to say to start with. And so I, I want to point out to you, this was not the plan, but the uh, photo that you see here on the screen was actually taken from the top of Blue Mountain over in the Olympics. It's one of the highest peaks in the Olympics. It's uh, you're actually able from Blue Mountain to look down on Hurricane Ridge. And, um, and you can see that on the day that we were there, uh, well, you can see what you can't see, right? You can see a few peaks looking through, but there's a whole lot that you just can't see. And that's really the premise for a lot of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. But I want you to know, as we prepare for that discussion, I want you to know a couple of things. One is that I am joining you in standing on that ridge today as we together look out across a vast expanse, some of which we'll be able to understand, and some of it which we will figure out what to trust to God. And so we stand together on this ridge of knowing what we do not know, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and together we're going to seek to grasp all that we can and leave the rest to God. The other thing I want to mention to you as we get started this morning is that, that we really are um, on very, we're always on sacred territory every time we open the Word of God, but this in one sense is especially, if there could be, especially hallowed ground, because what we're doing this morning as we stand on this ridge and look across is we're looking into the very character and nature of God himself. So I feel small as I join you in standing here. And I also want you to know that as we do this, we get into huge, huge ideas that we're not going to unpack entirely this morning. I'm going to pick, I've picked four words Four words. Some of them are kind of big words, so bear with me. We're going to dive in, work through them a little bit. But to know that at the end of the day, we are not going to cover the sum total of all that could be said about these two beautiful verses, Ecclesiastes 11, 5, and 6. So I invite you to join me in a journey, and, I, and you're going to have to do some uh, thinking. We're going to put our thinking caps on, and, um, and I ask you to bear with as well as we do some learning that prepares us to be able to experience and appreciate what we do not know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're asking that you would, by your Spirit, speak to us and show us your way this morning. Show us what we should know and help us to trust you with what we do not know. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. When I was um, shortly after I had graduated from kindergarten, yes, we actually had a kindergarten graduation, I think I was probably in first or second grade at the time, and I thought to myself, with all the superior knowledge of a recent kindergarten graduate, I could teach kindergarten. <laughs> I mean, after all, I had mastered it enough to graduate. Uh, Jim should really be laughing here. My first or second grade confidence exuding from every pore, I could teach kindergarten and that's really kind of the sum of what is the problem that we're faced with in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Uh, there's not anything worse than not knowing what you do not know. It's, it's one thing to know that you don't know something. It's worse to not know that you do not know something. 
For example, having broccoli stuck between your teeth and no one telling you. Or, or not realizing that you wore your slippers to church. Or discovering after a really big date that you forgot to put on deodorant. It's worse to not know what you do not know. And as a recent graduate of kindergarten, I did not know what I did not know. Yes, I could name my primary colors and probably could count to 20, but there was more to being able to teach kindergarten than just mastering a few of the basic details that were required to graduate from it. And it's this kind of misguided thinking that Solomon is directing us to here in Ecclesiastes 11. Let me read you the two verses that we're concentrating on as we come to the text this morning. And this is what it says in verse 5 and then, and then on into verse 6. Verse 5, as you catch it, do not know the way of the Spirit, the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So I'm inviting you this morning to join me as we look at this text on a short journey into the purposes of God, purposes that are so vast that we'll never fully comprehend them, because God's purposes humble us. Purposes that are so pervasive that we'll never escape them. God's purposes utterly envelop us. Purposes so beautiful that we'll stand in awe of them for all eternity. God's purposes call us to worship him, to love and to adore him, to trust and to believe him. So I want to ask you to join me in the journey by first wrestling with the interpretation of these verses and I want to tell you that even the interpretation of these verses leaves us in a certain amount of a need for knowledge that we're not going to walk away with entirely this morning. And that's because there are two significantly different interpretations for this verse, verse 5 in particular. And both have good arguments for them and have good men backing them. The trouble comes to the fact that the word in the Hebrew for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. And it's likewise the same when you get over to the Greek New Testament. The same word is there to describe both spirit and wind, and they're used alternately, and the interpretation is based on the context. And so we find that different people have interpreted this differently. I read you from the ESV, but here's another interpretation of it. It is a plausible reading to read it, as you do not know the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of a woman with a child. So that is an interesting interpretation. Um, it's plausible because it fits cleanly with the context immediately preceding it. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Okay, so maybe Solomon is just continuing on with the idea of wind. And um, the passage really casts us back to what Jesus says, or forward in this case, to what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Interestingly, a passage that also describes birth and wind. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 3. You're familiar with the passage. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now listen, 
the wind, there's that word with two meanings in the Greek, the pneuma, where the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now you can hear that Jesus here is clearly talking about the wind because he's describing things that we identify as wind. The wind is blowing where it wishes and you can hear it just like Pastor Kyle was talking about with the children. And so important commentators like Kyle and Delich um, take this view. Uh, they're kind of a gold standard in the Old Testament. And um, so we can't really disregard what they have to say. But, but there's a second view. And the second view is that this verse should read, as I've read it from the ESV here, uh, and it's interpreted this way. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, this is a plausible reading as well because it agrees with the general context of the book of Ecclesiastes and with the subject matter of the statement itself. So instead of taking an illustration from the wind and pairing it to birth, it, uh, it actually is one harmony when you look at it as this idea, the spirit coming to the bones of a woman with child. So it makes a beautiful harmony. And, and we have other contexts in Ecclesiastes, like in verse, chapter 3, verses 20, verse 21, where Solomon is using this very kind of picture. He says, Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? Well, clearly that's not the wind of a beast or the wind of a person, the wind of a man. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, the chapter begins with that and then says, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the wind returns to God who gave it. Well, really, it would be the spirit returns to God who gave it, right? So the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges argues for this view, saying that, quote, the Hebrew sentence should run thus and not describing two distinct phenomena, but one complex fact. Now, have I lost you yet? Hopefully not. Okay, so we're, tra we're tracking here. So there's two distinct views about how we can interpret this one verse, and it's very complex. So I would like to ask you a question. What are we going to do about it? Here we have a whole sermon about a passage in which there are very distinctly different views backed by credible good men. And I want to tell you that we just need to back up a little bit. Because the ultimate idea, whether we interpret it as Kyle and Dalich do, as the wind, or whether we interpret it as the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges does, or the ESV does, saying it's the spirit coming to the bones of a woman with child, in either case, the point's the same. Because the ultimate point is very simply this. You don't know all that God is doing. And I find it a bit ironic that the very passage which clearly communicates this to, this to us is actually in itself difficult to know. So God is saying to us through Solomon in chapter 11 and verse 5, as you do not know, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The thrust of Solomon's argument is very simple. For all that you've studied, for all that you think you understand, you simply don't know all that God is doing. It's like you're standing on that ridge and looking across and you see some of the things that God is doing but not all of them. It's as complex as understanding the direction of the wind or as understanding the marvel of the Spirit coming into 
a tiny child being formed in the womb. It is, in fact, a mystery. And so Solomon has walked us into a corner, frankly, in describing God's ways. And I want to give you the first of those big words that we're going to talk about this morning. And it is this. God's ways are inscrutable. Inscrutable means simply that it is impossible to understand fully or to interpret completely. So God's ways, says Solomon, are unable to be completely understood or fully and totally adequately interpreted. It's a tremendously important quality in God, and let me tell you why. If you could completely understand God, if you had them all figured out, yours would be the greater intellect. Are you with me? If you could literally put God in the confines of your own mind, yours would be the greater intellect. And what you would have actually done is to create for yourselves an idol. If you can confine the intelligence of God to your understanding, you have made of a God of your own making. You've made a God after your own image. In Isaiah chapter 40 that Mike just read for us, you heard some of the, the verses that uh, surround this concept. And, and Isaiah says this, To whom then will you liken God? What illustration can you give that would match the greatness and the inscrutability of our God? You could interpret that. Or what likeness will you compare with him? So, as if he's pulling this out as a brilliant idea, Isaiah says, an idol, that'll do it, an idol. But, he says, and he describes an idol now, he says a craftsman crafts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Yeah, just making a god like what we think he ought to be. You know, and it's made of maybe precious things, or in the case of someone who's poor, Isaiah says, well, they might not have the, the money, the resources to actually purchase something that is of super high value, so they just grab a block of wood. And he later on argues that from that same block of wood, they start the fire, and from this block of wood, they fashion a god. But the ultimate end is that this is a God confined to the restraints of our own mind. This is a God who is entirely within our capacity to think. But this, this is not our God. He holds the waters, as Mike read for us. He holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. He marks off the heaven with a span. He encloses the dust of the earth in a measure. He weighs the mountains in scales. And so Isaiah gets right down to business in this matter of God's inscrutability in three different ways that I want to show you this morning. And first he says that God's greatness is the limitless measure of everything else. God's greatness is the limitless measure of everything else. In verse 13, Isaiah asks the question, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? No one can say that he's reached the outer edges of the greatness of God. No one can boast that he's traveled to the outside limits of infinity and seen its end. No one can say that he's been to the place where the knowledge of God tumbles over into oblivion. 
because there is no such boundary. Instead, it's true that everything else is measured by God. His hand measures the oceans. His hand marks off the skies. His mind measures man. And it's he who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth emptiness, according to verse 23 of chapter 40. So God's greatness is the limitless measure of everything else. But then God's understanding is the basis on which we understand anything. Verse 13 and 14 says this, What man shows him, shows God, counsel? Whom did he, God, consult? Who made him to understand? So who can give God a better understanding than he has? Uh, Who can say that he's shown God something that God did not know before? We understand the world when we know something of God. We understanding does not that does not agree with the revealed truth of the Lord is not understanding, but distortion. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 18 and 20. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. God's understanding measures us. We do not measure God by our understanding. And that's really important because a God who you could measure would in fact be an idol. Oh, it may not be of stone or of wood or of gold, but it would be an idol, something that was cast in your own image, something that looks a little too much like you and not enough like infinity. There's one more thing, and that is that God's character both defines right and wrong and holds his world accountable. Isaiah goes on to say, Who taught him, who taught God, the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? So catch this. God operates on the basis of his counsel alone. He does not need suggestions on how to run his world or my life. He does not entertain second thoughts about whether or not his plan is the best because his plan is good through and through. Really, there are no what-ifs with God because his way is the only way. The people of God, for many centuries, have taken refuge in this truth. And I want to show you just one place where that's true. It's in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have just been threatened and told not to speak in Jesus' name anymore. And they um, are now gathered together and praying. The people are gathered together and praying. And listen to what they pray. I want you to catch this. This is a powerful reality. These people, threatened and possibly in danger, are taking refuge in the inscrutability and sovereignty of God. And this is how they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You're you're at a New Testament prayer meeting right now. You're hearing this? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, four types of people that are here listed by the New Testament prayer meeting, as being gathered together against the Lord Jesus. Now listen, listen, this is why you've got to listen to this next part, because this is where we catch it. They're taking refuge in the reality of the inscrutability of God. So these people, you're with me, these people have gathered together against Jesus. And, and we know the net result. He was crucified and died. But listen to how they take it. You and both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So when you have now gathered the New Testament prayer meeting, they are not looking at these four peoples or people groups and saying, they're the ones who did the deed. I mean, they were the ones who did the deed, but they say, this is the very plan of God, and they did it in cooperation in that greatest of great senses, in the inscrutability of God together with him. Can I tell you that the cross was never plan B? Never. I mean, that's a little bit shocking. I think that we get the idea in our minds that somehow in the great counsel of God, there was one thing that trumped his understanding. Maybe one thing that caught him off guard. And that was when Eve and then Adam took the fruit and partook of what was deliberately commanded by God not to do. And it all of a sudden threw the world into chaos. And God had to come up with another plan. Oh, oh, oh dear. What are we going to do? I guess we'll have to figure out, oh, it'll be the cross. No, oh no, no. From forever... The inscrutable plan of God was the cross. There was no better plan. And so God, taking counsel with himself alone, arrived at this conclusion, if God can ever arrive at a conclusion, and said, this is what I will do. Now, that is inscrutable to me. But that inscrutability does not leverage a sense of terror because the inscrutability of God is the fact that he exceeds my mind. And everywhere he exceeds my mind, he proves himself again to be God, the real, true, and living God. Again, if you could wrap your mind around all that God is, if you could understand his ways completely, as Solomon says, you cannot, then in fact you would not have a God at all. God is inscrutable, but his inscrutability does not mean that he acts without purpose or cause. Instead, inscrutability tells us that God's purposes, his causes, are beyond the scope of our understanding, and that's all. He is inscrutable in that he is beyond us. Paul praises God's inscrutability in Romans chapter 11. You will recognize this great anthem of praise to God. He says in verses 33 through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him be glory forever. Amen. All things are from him and through him and to him. And the reason for that, the reason that Paul utters this great anthem of praise is because God, it's pretty simple, is God. 
And as God, he is to us inscrutable. So Solomon says, As you do not know, the way of the the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Nope, don't understand that. Then he says, You do not know the work of God who makes everything. He backs us into the reality of both the sovereignty and the inscrutability of God. This truth about the character of God is so big that it really permeates the entire Bible. You have a big God. He's so big that the smartest people will never be able to wrap their minds around him. He's so rich, Paul asserts, so wise, so knowing, that he is in every way beyond our understanding, past our comprehension. But, and here I introduce you to the second of our four words this morning, but he is good. Now that's an astoundingly important reality when we have a God who is beyond our understanding. But everywhere that God exceeds us is good. Everywhere we come to the end of our grasp of God's ways does not leave us peering into a dark abyss wondering what kind of a terrible monster might be lurking in the depths that we cannot see. When I was a boy, I was terrified, for some reason, of my parents' closet. Their bedroom was off the end of the hall, and you took a left into their bedroom, and then you'd go right to go through the bedroom and to the bathroom. And because my job sometimes was to clean the bathroom, I had to pass the closet. I got it somehow into my mind that inside that closet, there were wolves. And I was terrified to cross from the entry to the bedroom to the bathroom because I had to cross that doorway. Well, probably the reason that I was really terrified was that the door was shut, and I didn't know what was inside. Well, now, I mean, I knew some, because interestingly enough, as in every case with God, the things that were kept in that closet were things like Christmas presents. They were good, but I was scared because I didn't know. Maybe you understand a little of that in your own experience. We're terrified of the things that we don't know, the things that we don't understand. But I want to affirm to you this morning, I want to let you know that this God whose ways are inscrutable, whose ways you will never completely find out, in every place he exceeds your understanding, he is good. What an amazing God. And so Solomon backs us into that idea giving us the very reality, the illustration he uses, if we take the ESV interpretation of it here, is of something that is amazingly beautiful and astoundingly good. How the spirit comes to the bones of a woman with child. What more amazing good could we imagine to illustrate this with than that? God exceeds us, but he exceeds us in every way that is good. When we come to the end of our understanding of God, we stand on the brink of his vastness and wonder at all the goodness that we have yet to know. I wonder if you'd be willing to travel back in time with me to catch this idea a little bit further. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 10 through 12, we stand with Solomon at the dedication of the temple. And this is what he says. When the priests came out of the holy place, we're dedicating the temple now, we're there with the crowds, 
a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I wonder if you can think for a moment with me about the nature of the thick darkness that Solomon here describes. And it was twofold. It was both obscurity and glory. Can you hear it in the passage? The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness. Obscurity on the one hand, glory on the other. And it really pushes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Yet earlier, the secret things, Moses says, belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God is inscrutable. His ways are past finding out. He's a big God. But this big God has made himself known, and what we know of him, Moses says, belongs to us. I think knowing God, understanding his goodness is, in a sense, a little bit like walking through the blueprints for a new home. And um, you may have done that. Um, I've walked with clients through, through blueprints as they look at all the things that the architect has specified will someday be true of their residence. And in one sense, you can say, as you trace with your finger through the blueprints, okay, now we're in the, in the main bath. And this is where we want that window, Rob. Or we're going to walk down the hallway here, and we're going to, um, to the living room where there's a big divider, and that divider needs some attention. In one sense, you could say, I have experienced the house. But there's another sense in which you have only experienced what you think of the house. Maybe you've watched it happen sometimes when... You have, um, perhaps in your own house, or maybe you watch someone else's house going up, and they pour the foundation. Is it a little bit shocking sometimes to watch what was on the blueprints get put into concrete? Oh, it shocked me. It's like, oh, um, I guess that's what it's going to be like. That's the difference between our understanding of God and the, and the things that we have been told about him. He's revealed us to him. Now, I want, uh, to himself to us, I want you to know that everything that God has revealed to us about himself is exactly accurate, just like the blueprints. The architect made the specifications, and if you have a good builder, he will build it exactly according to those blueprints. But the actual transformation from paper to product is revolutionary. That's the difference between our understanding and what truly is so many times Solomon's emphasis on obscurity and glory here at the dedication of the temple drives us still further back into the history of the people of God. And he takes us back in that sense to where Moses led the people out of Egypt. And you might remember that when Moses led the people out of Egypt in, uh, through the ten plagues, uh, Pharaoh let the people go, and he told him, in fact, get out of here. Uh, he thought better of that decision, though, and chased after them, pursued the fleeing Israelites to the Red Sea, where they were hemmed in by water on one hand and the world's most powerful army on the other. It did not look like a good move. And so the Lord told Moses, tell the people of Israel, this is a little bit inscrutable all its own, tell them to go forward. Well, now remember, what's a forward for them is water. 
right? Tell them to go forward. He tells Moses then, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Then the angel of God, catch this, the angel of God who was going before the host of the Israelites moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So catch this. And there was a cloud and the darkness, cloud and darkness, and this cloud and darkness lit up the night without the one coming near the other all night. One cloud was both darkness and light. To the Egyptians, God's glory, this pillar of glory, was darkness. It obscured the movements of the fleeing people, the Israelites, until they had crossed the Red Sea. To the Israelites, the glory of God was light, making their path plain, revealing the miraculous work of God in dividing the sea and steadying their fearful hearts. Is God mysterious? Yes, Yes, because he's infinite. In that sense, he's always beyond us. His ways are always past finding out, but he is good. And just like a good set of blueprints, God's self-revelation accurately tells us who he is to the finest detail. And every detail that we know, everything that's been revealed to us, attests that the obscurity of God's infinite presence harbors no wolves. In the sense that God's ways are higher than our ways, he's characterized as dwelling in thick darkness. The curtain between time and timelessness, between finitude and infinity, mortality and immortality, between unholy and holy, between bad and good, is so thick that the brightest minds and most devout students cannot penetrate it, let alone the enemies of God. But that obscurity is also characterized as unapproachable light in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because God is good, and he's holy, and he's true, and his goodness is far beyond our comprehension. It's so far beyond our understanding that when we come to him, it's like we're standing on the rocks at Birch Bay, and from that narrow vantage point, we say we've seen the Pacific. Such a statement would be true and untrue at the same time, because we have, in fact, seen the Pacific when we look across Birch Bay. But we've really only dipped our toes into a thimbleful of Pacific glory. Birch Bay is a true representation of the character of the Pacific to the extent that it's a tiny part of the 63.8 million square miles of the surface of the earth that the Pacific covers. But the shores of Maui present a very different view of the Pacific or Acapulco, or the islands of Japan, all of which are also a part of the greatness of the Pacific. So in a sense, when we stand at Birch Bay, we can say the Pacific belongs to me. I, I know the Pacific. And yet, in another sense, I only know its very shallowest edges. The Pacific is far more glorious than this one beautiful spot. And so may I remind you that when you come to the inscrutable goodness of God that you have known, the ways in which you've experienced the goodness of God in your life, you really are only at the edge of an ocean 
of goodness that you have yet to know. However blessed you've been, however favored you've been by God, you've only waited in the shallows, and you'll never be able to come to the end of it. When you think you've outstripped God's goodness, when you doubt his loving kindness, it's not that you've come to the end of the goodness of God, but follow me, you've come to the end of your understanding of it. So we can say two things about God as we look at him through Solomon's lens in Ecclesiastes 11.5. And first, that is that God is beyond us in every way. In every way, God is beyond us. He's inscrutable. And the second thing we can say is this, that in every way, God is beyond us. He's good. I want to give you a third word, and this is a tough one, a hard word for us, but it helps us to understand just how good God really is. And this is the word. It's omnirationality. Omnirationality. Now, we've, we understand words somewhat, at least, like omniscience and omnipotence and, and, uh, and so forth like that. But omnirationality is one that perhaps is new to you. And it means simply this, that God does what he does for every good reason. Now, we often say uh, that God is good. You can fill it in with the three words that we usually add, right? And they're good words, by the way. God is good all the time, right? That's true. And that's true of God. God's goodness is so great that he is good all the time. But omnirationality argues for yet another dimension to that goodness, and it is this. God is not only good all the time, but he is good for every reason. For every good reason, he is good. And so let me track with you what that means. There's a, an author by the name of Daniel Johnson who writes in a recent article in December this statement. He says, consider a craftsman making a piece of furniture, say a chair, which is both functional and beautiful. The craftsman recognizes that it is both, both functional and beautiful, but he doesn't care about the beauty of the piece, only its functionality. He makes the chairs so that people can sit in it. There are good reasons to make the chair so that the, craft, that the craftsman doesn't act on. He only acts on some of the reasons that there are to make the chair. Johnson continues, God can't be like this craftsman. I'm making a stretch, I know. God can't be like this craftsman, Johnson says. The reason the craftsman only acts on some of the reasons in order to make the chair or to make the chair is that he either doesn't know or doesn't care about some of them. But God isn't ignorant of any of the reasons there are to do something since he's omniscient. And God fully appreciates and cares about everything that is worth caring about since he's perfect. Were God the one making the chair, he would be making the chair both because of its function and because of its beauty and for good measure for any and all other good reasons there are to make the chair. In short, he says, God doesn't just act for some of the good reasons there are to do what he does. He acts for all of them. Get this, God always acts for all the good reasons there are to do everything. And so when we read Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 5, we realize that God, though we do not understand all his works, and they are in that sense inscrutable to us, they are good and they are good in every reason. 
We do not and we cannot know everything about all the works of God, but this we do know. Everything God does is good all the time and that he is always acting for every good reason for doing everything. You can look back at the life of Joseph to see that. In Joseph's life, we see um, an interesting illustration of omni-rationality. In chapter 45, you may remember that he argues from the character of God and God's um, inscrutable plan as a reason why he can forgive his brothers. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. And again in chapter 50, he says, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. So, so Joseph says... I forgive you on the basis of the character of God. Do I understand all of his plans? No, but I do know this. God sent me to preserve life. Now, when he did that, he called on one of the reasons for God's good plan. One of the reasons. But we know there are more reasons than that. We know that there are more reasons for that. And here's the thing. Every one of those reasons is good. So, for example, we know that one of the reasons that God moved the Israelites into Egypt was to be able to grow them there into a great nation. Joseph didn't use that reason to argue with his brothers to say why he could forgive them. But it was another of the good reasons why God did, in fact, send the people, send Joseph ahead of the people to Egypt. And we know, and we know from another place in the scripture, in Exodus chapter 7, that God had another good reason. And that reason was that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And that you, the people of God, may know that I am the Lord. So God has all these reasons. So every good reason is the reason God is doing what he does. He's inscrutable, he's good, and he is omnirational. God does what is good for every good reason. So when we run into a part of life that's dark to us, it's not a sign necessarily of the displeasure of God or an evidence that there's some way in which he's not good. Any darkness when we consider God, like the thick cloud in Solomon's temple, is a reminder that it is in fact God who's with us. And that he's not a God of our own imaginings. He's the God of the universe who made everything we see and everything we cannot see. He's inscrutable and he's good in every way. Any darkness that clouds our minds when we consider God is really an opportunity to trust him. It's a chance to believe that the vastness of his purposes and the unsearchableness of his counsel is all good in every way. So that brings us to a fourth word. We've learned that God is inscrutable. We know that he's good. We're trying to wrap our minds around the fact that he's omnirational. But I want to show you that he is also the God of our experience. Stop and think about it for a moment. If, if we stop and consider that we are the objects of God's favor through Jesus, then everything that happens to us in one way or another, everything that happens to us in one way or another, whether we understand it or not, is actually an expression of the goodness of God. I wonder if that makes Romans 8.28 come alive to you. All things work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are the called according to his purpose. This God who is inscrutable and who is good, whose goodness is defined as being omni-rational, this God is working all of that in every experience you have for good. And I want to show you four implications of this idea of the goodness of God worked out in my life through experience. The first is this experience it gives us a challenge. It gives us a challenge to rest our whys on the character of God. At the place where your understanding fails, lean into Christ Jesus, not to your own understanding. We're warned about leaning to our own understanding in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Do not lean on your own understanding, but acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, and he will make your paths straight. But it's not just that we do not lean to our own understanding. It is that we also lean into the understanding and the character of our good God. In John chapter 13, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, and he came to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, listen to what he said, what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you'll understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, Peter's first question Lord, do you wash my feet? Was, I think, both right and appropriate. He didn't understand. So he made his confusion known to the Lord. It was his response, Peter's response to Jesus' inscrutable explanation, where he went astray. When Jesus explained that he wasn't going to explain. When he told Peter that his understanding that he was looking for was not for this time, Peter reacted and actually refused to cooperate. He doubted. He just doubted. So in the face of an inscrutable statement by the Lord Jesus, Peter said, no, uh -uh, no, not going there, not doing that thing. I wonder if you've ever been there with Peter. You stand at the brink of something you do not understand and say, either we get an explanation on this one, Lord, or we're not doing it. Peter could not reconcile Jesus' actions with his understanding. He could not square the inscrutable purposes of God with his own thoughts. In a sense, Peter was trying to care, carry God's load for him. And the result was that he set himself in opposition to God and almost missed the blessing and the lesson that Jesus wanted to give his disciples right before the cross. So may I suggest that if you are in doubt somewhere in your life, you should check to see if it's because you're trying to carry God's load for him. Don't demand answers to everything. You can hear that in Ecclesiastes 11.5. There are some things, Solomon says, that you just will not know. Don't demand answers to everything. Faith really is the very essence of Christianity. In fact, we call it the Christian faith, right? But we like that idea in theory more than we often like it in reality. In reality, what we really want to do many times is to say, I want 
to be able to see, to touch, to feel, to bite, to chew the thing that I can actually grasp and hold in my senses. I want a Christianity that I can touch. But that's the exact opposite of the Christian faith. We are literally those people who worship God by faith, who believe in a God that we cannot see, who actually trust a God whose ways are beyond our understanding. And it's that way that we know that he is the true and living God, but it's also that very thing that causes us to react and say, I'm not so sure that I want to do what God is saying here, that I'd want to actually operate in this way by faith. God's greatness, his goodness, is really the only solid basis for faith. The Lord of heaven and earth is not like a Greek god, who is like a human on steroids, who's powerful but not all-powerful, who's occasionally good but fickle, who's distorted by selfishness and has more than natural strength to get whatever it is that he particularly wants. That's not our God. He is all-powerful, enough to meet all of the needs of your life. And because he is, because he is all-powerful, there are times when you won't understand. Remember that just because you've been to Birch Bay doesn't mean that you're acquainted with the entire Pacific. So could I urge that we just relax into the immeasurable greatness of God? Know what you can know and then rest the weight of your remaining ignorance on the sufficiency of your good God. I'd love right now to be able to flip back and look through the book of Job with you because Job wrestled through this in deep and very serious ways, especially as he heard God's voice in the last chapters of the book of Job. God answers Job finally in that section and describes to him things, interestingly enough, that do not tell Job the reason for his suffering, but tell Job about the character of the inscrutable God who is behind all things, whose ways are sovereign and whose Plans are good. So he argues from that. And Job, we get at the very end, doing exactly what here I'm exhorting that we do, relaxing into the immeasurable goodness of God. This is what he says at the very end. Job speaking, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. Can I tell you that there's no place of greater rest than the place where we rest all our confidence on God and trust that he really does know what he's doing, even when we do not? Rest your wise on the character of God. And then I want to point out that it would be important, an important implication of Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is that we need to let God be God. In Romans chapter 3, in verses 3 through 4, Paul says, Does there, the Jews, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Listen, we don't measure God by the failings of man. We measure the failings of man by God. So don't make God less. Let God be truly who he is. And by the way, 
don't make man more. We're always trying to switch places with the God of the universe and tell him how he ought to run his world. Let God be God. His ways are, in fact, inscrutable. And that's challenging, even frustrating, perhaps, at times. But remember, all his inscrutable ways are good. And so you can just trust him and let God be God. Never give yourself the liberty to ignorantly say, I've considered things and studied, and now I know all there is to be known about God in this way. I think sometimes we're guilty of that, and we settle for pat answers that don't tell the whole truth about God. It's easy to do because we like to be able to put God in a box that we can grasp and say, this is the way that God will do it. This is the way that God will work the thing out. And really, in that sense, we become just like Job's counselors, right? They had God in a box. And they said, obviously, Job, this cause would lead to this effect, and therefore, this is the problem. But they were wrong, because God had more that was behind the story than they even began to know. So don't just settle for pat answers. Don't make God less. Don't give yourself the ability to say, I have now got it all down. Remember that it's this very problem that led to the religious leaders of Jesus' day missing the Messiah. He didn't fit their prescribed, well-studied understanding of things. And so they, in their reductionism, totally missed the very one who now stood before them as the Son of God. It can happen like this. I must have failed because my child is not following Christ. Or, my marriage would have worked out if I'd have been a better husband or a better wife. It is true that we're flawed. And in some ways, we're almost always guilty. But to assume that you have the sole responsibility for other people and that that rests with you is like swapping places with the God of the universe and you don't know what he understands about the person or about the situation that concerns you. So I would suggest just lay yourself bare before God. Let him speak to you by his word and by his spirit. If he does not condemn you, then you are not condemned. If there's an area he reveals in which you've failed, then repent. And then rest in God. Believe it or not, God is so big. This is amazing to me. He's so big. He's so great that he even can use your failures to accomplish his purposes. That's a pretty great God. So don't judge God on the basis of your circumstances. Judge your circumstances on the basis of the character of God. A third implication that I want to draw your attention to is this, that we can join, we are to join God in his work. I wonder if you believe that God has put you where you are, that you're here this morning by the plan of God, that you're at your job by the plan of God, that you're experiencing the health issues you have by the plan of God, that you're having the relational challenges that you have by the plan of God. I wonder if you believe that. Based on what we said so far this morning, we surely should believe that. 
But I wonder if you really believe that. And if you do, can you believe that he has, in fact, put you there for every good reason? That there is really actually no better place for you to be? And that you, in that place, are perfectly equipped to join God in his work? That you are perfectly prepared to do what God has called you to do. Listen to what it says in verse 4 before our text in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. This is what Solomon says. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. And then he goes on in verse 6, skipping the verse we've been talking about mostly. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that. Or whether both alike will be good. So we want to not stop because we don't know. Don't stop because you don't know. Join God. So in the morning, so in the evening. Don't be sparing in your labor or in your generosity. God is at work and he's building his kingdom. And he has you exactly where he wants you to accomplish his purposes in the very best way. Don't stop because you don't know. It's easy to come to the faulty conclusion that since God is so great, since he's certain to accomplish his purpose anyway, that it really doesn't matter what I do. But nothing could be further from the truth. Solomon says, so when you don't know. For me, the danger is often to believe that I'm just waiting for God to do something big in my life. Something that I have in mind. But that's very short-sighted, and it misses accounting for the greatness of the work and purpose of God. When Melissa and I returned to the West Coast after years of work in a ministry in the Chicago area, we were very eager to be about the work of God. And so we started a business with the intention that the business would provide for us so that we could, well, we weren't exactly sure what we would do, but we figured it would involve writing and speaking and possibly traveling. And I could imagine that this little business that we were starting would be just humming along so that I would be free to do whatever it was that was really the work of God. But God had other plans. And we started the business, and that was almost simultaneous with the birth of our first daughter. And the business, frankly, showed no signs of humming along while I somehow charitably gave my time to ministry. So, we weren't exactly sure what we would do. I remember an elderly friend reminding me, I was probably about 30, and he must have sensed my frustration. He said, well, 30 isn't really that old, and we pinched pennies, and we scraped by, and we felt buried, tucked away in the fourth corner of the U.S. in this little place called Ferndale. And the business and our growing family and our house or need for housing in the early years consumed almost all my time. Didn't God know that we were here to do his work? We were okay with living a life without all the bells and whistles of the American dream, but it was harder to not live with the bells and whistles of the American dream and not to do the work that we thought we were supposed to do. That was hard. It hurt. I remember Melissa saying to me a number of times, 
over the years as we looked at our little family and as I wondered about my place in the kingdom of God, she'd say, this is your parish. And I could look around and see six little faces looking back at me. And it wasn't what I had pictured. It wasn't what I thought. But I had a chance to pour myself into those little people in enviable ways. I took them on business trips. I sat them on the work table while I labored day and night. I chatted with them over lunches because I was able to work from home. I enjoyed them in every phase of their little lives. And I had the chance just to grow along with them. That was very different than what I had in mind. I, I still don't know. I'm making this, I want you to hear this. I still don't know why God chose to do things the way he did. But I want you to know something. I'm joining you in a great opportunity to judge him faithful and competent and right where I don't understand because he's good. So where his understanding has exceeded mine, and it regularly does, this is just one illustration out of many illustrations that I could give and that you could give back to me. I get the chance to just join him in his work. Sometimes I'm waiting for that big thing, for that break. And you know, God says, don't stop because you don't know. Who knows what God will prosper, whether it is this or that. Solomon says, so when you don't know. So I take heart and I don't give up. I must sow the seed that God has entrusted to me. One last implication. For our experience is to pray for strength to know the unknowable. Hosea says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is, his going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Know God. This is the quest of eternity. Do not give up on the eternal quest. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our whole confidence, our only Cause for certainty is in the character of God. Do you know who he is? Are you measuring your circumstances by his greatness and believing him even when you don't understand? Mike read to us Ephesians chapter 3, a portion of it, which is a prayer of Paul's. And it's in this that Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers a, very, a prayer that should be on our lips. 
that we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, a love that surpasses knowledge. Did, did you hear the prayer? That we would know what cannot be fully known. That we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul says he wants us to know the unknowable, to swim out into the depths of every dimension of the character of God, especially his love. And in knowing him more, to know that there is infinitely more of him to know. Have you tasted the love of God for you? What you have experienced is the opening measure in an eternal song, sing on. You've dipped your toes in the shallows of Birch Bay when the entire Pacific is before you. Swim further out. Let the shoreline of comfortable life fade from view as you press on to know more and more of your good God. In 1773, William Cooper wrote words that I think really capture some of the beauty of Ecclesiastes 11, 5 through 6, and he wrote this. God, speaking of his inscrutability, moves in a mysterious way as wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast. Unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he, in his own good time, and in the very best of ways, will make it plain. You may have noticed that Paul is praying for these believers to know the unknowable. And I wonder if you'd like to join me in praying that very thing. I think it's worthy for us to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in the light of something so great as a truth like Ecclesiastes 11, 5, and 6. You do not know the way of the spirit comes to the bones of a womb the womb of a woman with child so you just aren't going to know everything but we can press on to know all that we can and then trust that the places where god is beyond us in every way in which he is to us obscure we can trust him. Would you join me in praying that way this morning? Our Father, everywhere we look, in every place in life, we realize, thanks in one part to Solomon's exhortation to us this morning, that we are really grasping only the smallest part of the greatness and the goodness of our God. We don't understand. We don't grasp everything, but we pray, oh God, that you would help us to dive in, to swim further out, to taste more of the inscrutable 
inexhaustible grace and goodness and greatness of our God, that we'd know you, that we'd know more of you today than we knew yesterday, and in the days to come, that we would know yet more and expect that everywhere, everywhere you are beyond us, you are, in fact, good. Thank you that we've been able to share in your word this morning. We pray you'd bless it now in Jesus' name.